China will always be a good friend of Pacific Island countries, no matter how the international situation changes, said Xi Jinping at the end of May this year. Furthermore, he said, China is willing to work with Pacific Island nations to build a community with a shared future. So, Stuart, that is a very clear statement of intent regarding the Pacific from a Chinese point of view, wouldn't you agree? Well, it sounds like it to me, Sam, but fortunately, our listeners don't have to take my word for it because we're being joined by a real expert today on Pacific security issues, Alexander Neal. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Sam. Alex worked for the British and US governments in his early career, focusing on the Asia-Pacific security concerns. And from 2005, he served as the head of the Asia Security Programme at RUSI, that's the Royal United Services Institute for Defence and Security Studies, based in London. There he developed a programme of research focusing on British policy concerns towards Asian security. Um, He coordinated several projects in Asia, including high-level dialogues in Beijing, Pyongyang, Taipei and Tokyo. He's a graduate of SOAS, he's a fluent Chinese linguist, and he's much published on Chinese security issues. But his interests are much broader than that, including sort of counterterrorism issues in Asia, deterrent studies in Asia, and cybersecurity. And for seven years through to 2020, he was a Shangri-La Dialogue Senior Fellow for Asia-Pacific Security at the International Institute of Strategic Studies in Singapore, responsible for delivering the agenda and research products for the Shangri-La Dialogue Summit which is a large summit in the defining summit, really, in the Indo-Pacific security issues, particularly on China and relationships in the region. So, Alex, maybe I can just kick off with the really stupid question, which is how do you kind of define what the Pacific is from China's perspective? And why is the Pacific so important to China? Well, thank you very much, Stuart. And it's a great pleasure to be joining this podcast today. I think the best way that I like to frame China's strategic perspectives when it comes to the Pacific is actually to look at a map of China, but to actually flip it upside down. And what you get is a very large continental power, which is hemmed in in many ways geographically to its north by mountains and deserts, the Gobi Desert and uh, Mongolia. but to the south, it's actually constrained in a maritime way by the so-called first island chain or the Pacific Rim of Fire, which comprises Japan, Taiwan, and then down, down towards the Philippines. That's known in the strategic community as the first island chain. The second island chain is where China's strategic over-the-horizon site, if you like, meets Micronesia, it meets Oceania, and it meets um, the the South Pacific. And that is where uh, new strategic rivalry is taking place in the Pacific. So I would encourage um, our listeners to get a globe, flip it around, and have an idea of how China actually sees its maritime outreach and its strategic interests um, towards the Pacific. Well, Alex, we'll, we'll put that map into the show notes so everyone can have a look at the reading. Yeah, great. So over the last couple of decades, China has um, stated very clearly its aspiration to become a blue ocean or a blue sea power and the ability to project power and to 
preserve its own interests increasingly into the Pacific region. And uh, that is why Oceania and the South Pacific has become such an important area of competition between China and particular Western interests in the region. But also, of course, the interests of the people and the countries who actually are there. And there are questions of diplomatic recognition. There are military deterrence questions for China in this area. It's geostrategic gambit or geoeconomic gambit, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Global Development Initiative. And, and that's starting to rub up against Western interests in this region. So, so Alex, Stuart and I have spoken about this sort of from previous podcasts, but we think that there are kind of three reasons why the Pacific is so important for China. And it'd be great to know whether you agree or not. The first one is it is a gateway to China and it's vital for their trade and or their imports and exports. Secondly, is because by dominating the Western or the South Pacific, they get to cut off Australia from America and interrupt that flow there. And then the last is because if they can control the first island chain, that means that they are much more able to project power into the Pacific and so extend the defensive line away from their shores. Would you agree with those three points? I I think that's very fair. Traditionally, we've been quite preoccupied with the idea of the Malacca Strait and bottlenecks along the Indonesian archipelago. But as China builds links with South America, for example, with Latin America, places like Oceania are are strategically fundamentally important for China. And so developing new maritime access through this region as an important junction where sea lines of communication intersect and also where digital infrastructure is being built out as well. I think, yeah, this area is fundamentally important for China. It's also part of the sort of South-South concept in terms of Beijing's willingness to court the developing world in Oceania. And so part of the narrative is, or at least Xi Jinping's narrative, is to offer a model of governance and um, geoeconomic opportunity, which hasn't been offered in this way before. So Alex, um, how's this China interest in the Pacific Islands then manifesting itself? Our listeners will probably be aware that China has just launched a third aircraft carrier. I think it's a third aircraft carrier. It might be the second. You'll, you'll probably know better than I. Is that of big significance? Is that something that we should be worried about? Well, I, I referred earlier to this blue water capability that the People's Liberation Army Navy is aspiring towards. And the launch of this new supercarrier, because that's what it is, it's um, of an order of magnitude, it's similar in scale to a Nimitz-class carrier of the US Navy. And its displacement is is very significant. I think it's 80,000 tons. It doesn't have this um, ski ramp takeoff configuration on the carrier. It's got an electromagnetic catapult. So it's it's really demonstrating catch-up capabilities with that of the U.S. As a, as a naval superpower. And the previous two aircraft carriers, they're actually more or less experimental platforms, or at least training platforms. But really, this, this carrier represents China coming of age and its ability to project power out into the Pacific Ocean and the intent to do that. So taking a a carrier strike group out into the Pacific to back up its interests 
in the South Pacific is something that um, this aircraft carrier will be doing in the not too distant future. So Alex, it's interesting you mentioned about the the catapult system there, because as you probably saw, there are lots of allegations that China was able to develop that catapult technology using technology that it gleaned from a British company called Dynex that a Chinese company bought a few years ago, and which observers have said was instrumental in the development of many technologies to do with uh, the Chinese Navy. So just as an aside, actually, Stuart and I will be covering this in a podcast moving forward. But just going back to your points. So just to be clear, what you're saying is that it's not just about the aircraft carriers, though. It's about Xi Jinping going to the Pacific and saying, you know, we've got a new system of governance and we're going to give Belt and Road Initiative funding as well. So with all that in mind, where does the Solomon Islands announcement that was made recently come in? Is this a purely military thing or is it something that encompasses all those different points of China trying to extend its influence in the Pacific? Well, the Solomon Islands has recently refuted or rebutted accusations that the Solomon Islands will be used as a basing lily pad, if you like, for for the People's Liberation Army Navy. The PLA may not build a base there, but I think dual-use utility is, is really important here. And um, when you refer to the catapult technology on the aircraft carrier, the Chinese military over the last two decades has become very adroit at uh, acquiring dual-use technologies and putting them into military platforms. So this may be an example of of a very successful dual-use capability and, and China's ability to evade sanctions like the EU arms embargo, for example. I think when it comes to port access, I mean, this is very much part of the Solomon Islands security agreement, and this gives geographical reach to China. It doesn't necessarily have to have a fully-fledged military base built on the Solomon Islands, but if there's a deep-water port capability and the right size of berthing, then you could get a, uh, an aircraft carrier in there much in the same way as Guam is a hub for the U.S. Navy in the South Pacific. So very much a dual-use capability, possibly under development with this security agreement. If you look further afield to Djibouti, for example, China's narrative initially about China's garrison, which is what it really is now in at the mouth of the Red Sea, was that it would be a replenishment base, uh, a logistics hub for the in- increasing naval uh, operations by the PLA Navy in, in that part of the world. But then over time, uh, with satellite imagery and closer scrutiny of that base, it was very apparent that it's a sophisticated bastion for China in that part of the world. So I wouldn't rule out China talking about replenishment and logistics and dual use. But over time, the possibility of actually building infrastructure for dedicated use by the, the PLA Navy. We've also seen recently the RIEM naval base development in, in Cambodia and, and China rebuilding that out. And clearly that will have dual use capabilities for the PLA Navy too. Yeah, Alex, that's really interesting you mentioned the Cambodia base there, because is there a, a strong parallel and similarity in the tactics that China can be expected to use or is using in the Pacific Islands vis-a-vis what has happened in the South China Sea? 
with China's desire to gain access to the Indian Ocean, the Gulf of Thailand, and to sort of alleviate the pressure on the Malacca Straits. I mean, is it the same strategy being rolled out across the world? Well, China is pretty good at obfuscation when it comes to its core interests and security interests. So initially, there might be talk of the need for civilian utility. So things like maritime domain awareness, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, that kind of softer end of maritime capabilities. And then over time, it becomes part of a dual use narrative. And then eventually, you might see an actual fully functioning military base crystallizing in this part of the world. But if you look at China's aircraft carrier program, initially, there was flat out denial that and I'm talking about at least 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there was flat out denial that um, China was going to build aircraft carriers. But I remember once um, visiting a a strategic think tank in Beijing and seeing a scale model of the Liaoning aircraft carrier in a glass box. And I thought, well, I don't think these aircraft carriers are just going to be purely conceptual. And, you know, within a few years, we saw the the Liaoning launched, which was um, a sort of refurbished Varyag hull, interestingly built in Ukraine, and and headed out from the Black Sea and, and got completely overhauled and became China's first aircraft carrier. But this latest one is really something to behold. And I think it's important to put aircraft carriers also into the context of military diplomacy and increasing your footprint in remote places. And and that's certainly what the US Navy does. And um, recently, the Royal Navy, with the mission by the HMS Queen Elizabeth heading out to the Indo-Pacific region, I think that's another example of how military diplomacy and increasing your footprint and possibly even um, defense sales is is all part of the equation. And that's how aircraft carriers can be used in a non-lethal way, if you like. We're just talking about obfuscation. I was smiling when you were saying about the denial about your aircraft carriers, because it reminded me of the fact that China said that they didn't have any intent to do anything with the Riam port in Cambodia. And then when it broke ground a few weeks ago, it was it was opened by the Chinese ambassador. Yes, that's right. <laughs> and the Cambodian defense minister has recently been swimming in the sea with, I think, the Chinese ambassador who opened up that base. So, um, yeah, the, the turnaround from rejection of any hint of building infrastructure to the actual materialization of and the reality was was, was quite quick in the case of um, the Rian base. But, you know, these things do take time. But China is very adept at having a kind of malleable narrative about how it's developing these capabilities. And I think we also shouldn't forget that the, the People's Liberation Army is the armed wing of the Communist Party. So it's not a national defense force in the way that um, you'd think of them in, in Western democracies. But just going back to Stuart's point about how the parallels are between the uh, South China Sea and, and the Southwest Pacific, and you mentioned about the aircraft carriers. Um, but funny enough, the Chinese have been talking for a while now about how they've got carrier killer missiles and that they have put in place what's called the A2AD, which is basically the area denial mechanisms to stop any American or allied forces being able to operate in the Western Pacific if there was a clash. So it does seem slightly weird or ironic that the Chinese, having said that no carriers can operate because they're so good at missile technology and then build their own carriers. But with regard to the South China Sea and the islands there, which are being used as sort of 
of bases, perhaps sort of fixed aircraft carriers, if you will. What do you think the planning is that with China, are we looking at these as being military outposts to deny the areas to the Americans and the allies in, in case of war? And that, I'm just talking specifically about the South China Sea there. And if so, do we think that they're going to try and replicate that in the Western Pacific to, in essence, take away those areas from the allies if there was a clash over Taiwan, for example? Or do you think we're too early in that story to be able to make any firm conclusions? Well, I, I think the big difference between the South China Sea and the South Pacific is that China claims a very large swathe, probably two-thirds of the South China Sea, as its own maritime sovereign territory. It views the sea space within what's called a nine-dash line, which extends from the southern tip of Taiwan down through the South China Sea uh, along the uh, maritime periphery of Vietnam, and then it loops back along the coast of Borneo. It's a large appendage or a, a tongue of maritime space, which China views as a Chinese lake, and that's a term that's been used in the past. What the terraforming does, the creation of these artificial islands, is it it substantiates that claim by creating terra firma, so to speak, on these coral atolls. And the nine-dash line suddenly becomes perhaps more enforceable So eventually, you might come across a scenario where maritime traffic transiting the area do so at the tacit behest of Beijing. When it was apparent that these naval and air bases were being built in the South China Sea, very early on, US military planners and strategists said that these island bases were inherently vulnerable. And something that popped into my mind was that, you know, this idea of a sort of maritime Maginot line, something that in peacetime looked quite impressive, but in wartime would have little utility. But I think what China is is very good at as well is talking about the civilian utility of these islands and these so-called grey zone tactics, moving into the grey zone below the threshold of war to saturate the South China Sea with the Chinese presence. And that's what's happening now. It's not just the Navy It's maritime and border enforcement, the maritime militia, um, all those sort of agencies which are saturating this part of the South China Sea. Alex, it's interesting you mentioned the maritime militia there because our listeners are probably aware of the fact they might have heard on the news that China has been warning the United States, but other countries too, that the Taiwan Strait is its sovereign water. Mm. You know, it's, it's territorial water, not international waters, as is claimed by others. And under new law, that allows their Coast Guard freedom of action in the Taiwan Strait. Do you see that as being a very significant step? And what should the rest of the world be doing about that? Well, I I think part of this ratcheted approach by Xi Jinping and the Central Military Commission to say that from China's perspective, and if we return to that map concept that I described earlier. The Taiwan Strait, I think, has always been viewed as China's maritime territory and China's outer periphery, if you like, is the east coast of Taiwan. So anything inside that off the west coast of Taiwan, namely the Taiwan Strait, is China's maritime territory. 
And I think conceptually, that's always been in, in the mind's eye of Chinese military planners. But what they've done now is they've said it. And in recent months and years, we've seen U.S. freedom of navigation operations transiting the Taiwan Strait in what is viewed and is international waters. There's a median line through the middle of the Taiwan Strait, and Taiwanese forces, as well as the People's Liberation Army, are very careful not to cross that median line. But to say that the entire strait is Chinese maritime sovereign territory is part of a ratcheted approach towards the eventual goals of reunification with Taiwan. And that's what's been in the news in recent months. A very, very contentious question. And it begs the question of preparedness of the United States to intervene under the Taiwan Relations Act, and indeed countries like Japan as well, because Taiwan has been publicly stated as part of Japan's national security calculations now. Uh, Great. Thank you so much, Alex. That was very interesting indeed. I suppose for me, the key takeaways are first that we've got to look at the Pacific from the Chinese point of view, uh, I as a continental power. And that first island chain is obviously really important to them uh, and hems them in. You can see it quite clearly if you look at the map the, the other way around. Uh, secondly, that the Pacific, they're not just looking at the security, the pure security element, but they've got the political outreach and the economic outreach, etc. And that all falls into the category of Chinese influence. Uh, and thirdly, is just that the South China Sea and the aircraft carriers and, and their position in the West Pacific, they all come down to China really preparing itself to be a, a much stronger military power, whether that's got anything to do with Taiwan moving forward or not. So thank you very much, Stuart. Have you, have you got any other final points you want to add? I'd just like to thank Alex very much indeed for his time. And I think we should have him back next week, Sam, in order to talk about the power transition in China. Yeah, good idea. I mean, Alex, you and I have spoken about that before, so you should have quite a lot to say. Yeah, that's right, Sam. We have. We've had long conversations about this. Um, but thank you very much to you both for, for hosting me today. And it's a, it's a great pleasure to speak to your audience. I uh, look forward to having another conversation uh, with the approach of the 20th Party Congress coming up at the end of this year. Great. Thanks very much, Alex. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.